This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce of Laguna Pueblo. The 1990s saw a proliferation of casinos following the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act a few years prior. And the Native American Arts and Crafts Protection Act and the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act recognized the importance of protecting culture. Meanwhile, a banker named Eloise Cobell noticed something wrong in the government's management of Native trust funds and filed suit in 1996. We're continuing our Through the Decade series looking at the 1990s, right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Pope Francis continued his Canadian visit with an outdoor mass in Edmonton on Tuesday. Nearly 70,000 people attended the event. But as Dan Karpinchuk reports, there's still mixed reaction to the apology the Pope made to Indigenous people on Monday for church-run residential schools. A day after the Pope's historic apology on Canadian soil, many Indigenous people are still talking about it. There is still anger and sadness. Elizabeth Sakine is a residential school survivor. She says she does not accept the Pope's apology because he was forced to come to Canada to ask for forgiveness. Sakine says, among other things, the Vatican has still not released files or documents related to the residential school era. I would like the Pope and the churches to get involved in what we're doing. We're doing healing and we need help. He can't just come to Canada and say, I'm sorry. He's got to touch base with us. He's got to get his workers to help us heal in this journey. The Pope's public mass in Edmonton has also been called a missed opportunity. An indigenous priest in Ottawa, Corbier Winkler, says the mass could have been used to celebrate indigenous traditions and cultural practices, but it was not. The Pope blessed and kissed babies and young children, and the mass focused on grandparents, the elderly, and the family. But Winkler says he was devastated when the Eucharistic prayer was delivered in Latin a language that many Indigenous people heard at residential schools. Later in the day, the pontiff travelled to Lac St. Anne, north of Edmonton, to take part in the community's annual pilgrimage. Today he leaves Edmonton and travels to Quebec City for the next stop in his six-day visit. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. Indigenous people continue to account for a disproportionate number of missing persons in Montana. That's according to the latest report from the state's Justice Department. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton has more. According to the report, Indigenous people accounted for nearly a third of all 2021 missing person reports in Montana, despite only making up roughly 7% of the state's total population. There were 650 reports of missing Indigenous people last year, most under the age of 18. About two-thirds of missing Indigenous people were located within a week's time, as of June of this year, eight Indigenous people remained missing. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. After a two-year pandemic hiatus, a large cultural gathering recently returned to Eastern Oregon. KLCC's Brian Bull reports on the 30th anniversary Tamkalix celebration. Dozens of dancers dressed in feathers, beadwork, and porcupine quills marked each powwow's grand entry. Regional drum groups played as well, with a procession of Appaloosa horses circling the gathering for other events. The Tamkalix gathering is for descendants of the Wallao Band of Nespers, who were forced off their lands in 1877 and pursued by the U.S. Army, 
before surrendering just shy of the Canadian border. Bobby Connor is one of the event organizers. We believe the land hears our prayers, feels our footsteps on the earth, and the land is happy to welcome us back. But we also believe that there is a light in the earth that lights up when we bring ceremony to the landscape, and it lights up our hearts when we gather to celebrate this magnificent country that we come from. Another event commemorated Native children who went missing during the boarding school era. One cause for celebration this year, besides renewing Tamkalix, is the Nez Perce tribe's recent acquisition of 148 acres that originally formed an ancestral village in the town of Joseph. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull in Wallawa, Oregon. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Let's start the show off today by hearing from Randy Pione from radio station KREZ. That's KREZ Radio, the voice of the Coeur d'Alene Indian Reservation. And Coeur d'Alene people, our reservation is beautiful this morning. It's a good day to be indigenous. It's 45 degrees in the sun. It's 8 a.m. Indian time in 1998. And it's time for the morning traffic report. For that, let's go to Lester Falls apart at the K-Res traffic van, broken down at the crossroads since 1972. So, Lester, how's traffic out there this fine morning? A couple of cars went by earlier. You know old Mrs. Joe? She was speeding. And uh, Kimmy and James, uh, they weren't buying a yellow car and they were arguing. Ain't no traffic, really. There you go, folks. Looks like nobody's getting to work on time this morning. That is the late John Trudell as the DJ from the movie Smoke Signals. It was a mainly Native cast with a story by a Native writer set on an Indian reservation. And it was a big hit in the 90s. Other movies during the decade with Native themes included Dances with Wolves, Thunderheart, and Last of the Mohicans. These films and others started showing a more human side of Native Americans, but still had a long way to go. NAGPRA and the Arts and Crafts Act became law, giving tribes power over their own culture, and tribes exercised their sovereign right to open casino gaming, providing more economic power. It was a good decade to be indigenous. What do you know or remember about the 1990s, other than grunge fashion and the arrival of the internet? What is the legacy of the decade we're enjoying now? Join our discussion about the 90s, 1-800-996-2848 is the number to call to share memories and insights. 
1-800-996-2848. Producers are standing by. We're waiting for your calls. Let's get started. Joining us now from New York is Vincent Schilling. He is an editor of NativeViewpoint.com, a certified Rotten Tomatoes critic, and NAC's resident pop culture expert on all decades, going back to when he was still wearing Hulk pajamas. He is Aquasasni Mohawk. Vince, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for that introduction. <laughs> glad to be here. So glad to be here. It's glad to have you here, brother. And last time you were suffering a little bout of COVID, and that you sound a whole lot better. How are you feeling? Doing great, dude. I, I I don't even remember. I barely remember the show. It was so bad, dude. I just like, what? hello. I, I don't. I don't even know what I was doing that day. And then my wife listened to the show, and she goes, "You were really good." I'm like, "Thank God," because <laughs> I was nervous. I don't even know what I had said. Uh. But oh my God, doing much better. Doing much better. Well, you were great as always, and um, looking forward now, we're clicking ahead. We went through the 60s, the 70s, 80s, now we're at the 1990s. This is our Mm -hmm. tribute to the decades. And the 90s, Vince, it started off with a bang for Native people when Dances with Wolves came out. Hugely popular film. How did that change or affect Hollywood's portrayal of Native Americans? Right. Well, I was like, whoa, I I saw it in the theater. I I don't know, Sean, I was born in 1967. I'm 55 today, so I've been around a little bit. Uh, you know, someone elder in training, but not quite there yet. But I remember sitting there in the theater going, what the heck is this? Wow, there is actual Native people. And I just remember, I remember the biggest scene I remember was when Kevin Costner was sitting there and this Native, uh, you know, warrior comes up to him and he's yelling at him in his language. And um, and then, you know, Kevin Costner passes out because he was so scared. Of the but I was just going, whoa, that that was real, you know, and I just remember being absolutely just mesmerized with with, uh, you know, what I had just seen. Yeah, the movie had its problems. The movie had its issues. But as a little native kid growing up literally on Compton Boulevard, who had only seen like a native here or there maybe if i was lucky to see one in a feature film like that was life-changing for me i just remember how big it was in indian country and i remember it made rodney grant just this huge star i remember he was in people magazine and Mm -hmm. i remember when he came he he came to gathering of nations that spring after the movie came out so it would have been like spring of 91 i guess and I remember he set up a booth right there around the perimeter at the old pit. And I remember I was just, I just happened to be there and I saw him and there were like a few people noticed him and came over within like three minutes, bro. There, there were, there was a line of like 500 people just That's completely crazy. surrounding That's his booth. Incredible. And at one time, at one point he went down to the pit cause they were going to recognize him on the floor there in the arena. Yeah. And he, yeah. he had his hair down, you know, and he, he was all decked out. And he came running up the arena steps. And you, the, the women were just like, I mean, they were just, they were just standing up, like, screaming. It was, I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, it was like Mick Jagger or something, you know? It was like nuts, bro. People were so yeah. into him. That's so crazy. He was the, he was the Zon McLaren of the 1990s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big time, big time. Oh my but God. then, I, I mean, now in retrospect, um, the movie is—it's considered problematic by many people. Yeah, and sure. Why do you think? Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, because because the the uh, let's say it, in front of the camera, 
things were were building right Pe- what what the audience sees was there you know what people would 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 walk away from was wow that was an actual indian you know i'm sure people were thinking stuff like that but but what wasn't there was the level of attention to detail uh the the cultural consultants probably weren't as culturally consulted at the time you know what i'm saying so things could slip that that people would usually um, not let go. And and I would imagine that so many actors and, and people involved were so excited that, wow, I'm actually wearing some legit stuff, that anything else kind of to, to supporting details were just kind of left to the wayside. I'll never forget, you know, um, I think it was, uh, you know, in Real Indian where Charlie Hill was like, you know, what was up with the – well, what's up? What's up with Kevin Costner's girlfriend? She looked like Betty Rubble. Her hair was like all blown out and <laughs> covered. And she was like, like I think she had like mud on her face. It was like what you can't learn to to like go go to the river and like wipe your face off. <laughs> she was the the white lady who had been had been capped, stolen, right, and raised by the Lakota. Right, right, right? right that was her story, right, and she right, had yeah, like. <laughs> <laughs> I remember her hair was it didn't look like any of the other little ladies had their hair was all you know long yeah. and braided and her hair was just I mean I yeah. knowing knowing our family she would have been she would have been there 15 minutes before like eight eight women would have like just swooped down on her and been like girl you need to fix your hair you know? I, mean, so I, I, I was just so there's some hilarity in the movie but it, there's also some appreciation appreciation there you know it's very nostalgic and and yes okay there were problems and, and, and I I recognize that, but you know, Kevin Costner tried, and I think Kevin Costner's uh, even got family in the Cherokee Nation, doesn't he? I, I remember the, the Lakota adopted him after Dances with Wolves. I don't yeah, know about Cherokee yeah. Nation, but I th- I've heard he actually has a bloodline somewhere, and you know, it hasn't been confirmed as far as I know, but not, maybe it was just a rumor. But but you know, he's always been connected to Native culture, and that's when he did Yellowstone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, it's it was. I have uh, I have more of an appreciation for that film than I do a disdain. Well, one thing it, it really led to just this huge wave of native films following that. Yeah. You know, you had mm-hmm. Thunderheart, and then right. there were some TV movies, some of the Morning Star, Indians Last of the Mohicans, Indian in the cupboard. You know, yeah. <laughs> there you go, in the cupboard. Vince, Both what are some of your? <laughs> yeah, that came ninety five, I think. Oops. Right. So Disney's, what... Disney's big oop. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> that one didn't age so well, I guess. Um, no. But with some of these other films that came later, where do you think their significance lies? Well, the thing is, is, is it, history's kind of repeating itself. You know, um, people love films about Native people. They've always loved to be obsessed with Native culture. And you could walk out and be like, hi, guys, how you doing? And they'll still be like, oh, my God, that was so spiritual. You know, and then you're like, I just said, hi, how you doing? <laughs> you know, but I, I love your culture. And I'm, um, But what it was is people were finally seeing some actual Native regalia, some actual attention to real Native detail. And people, um, film audiences have always loved Native American, let's be honest with you, even if it was done wrong. And, and, but the, so, so what it actually was is not so much that, oh, look, there's more films about Indians. It's like there were a slew of, of, uh, directors and writers and actors who were trying to get it right. 
you know, and, and they failed on many levels, but they succeeded on others. You know, they would use actual, you know, regalia. They would use actual, you know, designs that you would see, uh, of facial paintings and things like that from the tribes. There was actual native words and native languages, even if some of the lead actors, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis, Val Kilmer, who, 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 you know, who are not playing where they're from. But because I think filmmakers were actually trying to make a difference and trying to bring actual life to actual native culture, uh, it was appreciated in many ways. And that's why you'll see, you know, kind of a lot, a, a wide range of opinions. Like, you better get it right. But sometimes things don't age too well. You know, just like some of those Saturday morning cartoons you watch that were just, you, know, you look now and you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, so I think they were trying, you know, they were trying to do it right. And even though they didn't get it all right, I think they real some of the filmmakers really were, were trying to get it right, even if some of the some of the details were a little lazy. We're speaking right now with Vincent Schilling, native film critic. He's given us a rundown on movies from the 90s. And 1990 was a big year when the decade kicked off. And in addition to Dances with Wolves, the Emmy award-winning television show Northern Exposure premiered on CBS. The show was set in a fictional Alaska town with numerous native actors and storylines, and it was a ratings hit for four seasons. And in 1991, through an act of Congress, the name Custer Battlefield National Monument, located in Montana, was changed to Little Bighorn National Monument. Folks, if you've got a question or a comment or you just want to talk a little bit of the 1990s, what your memories are, what your thoughts are, give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. Back more with Vincent Schilling after a break. When Miguel Trujillo came back from serving in the Marine Corps during World War II, he couldn't vote. The veteran turned civil rights activist from Isleta Pueblo, then challenged the state of New Mexico with a lawsuit, and won. We're talking about the legacy of Miguel Trujillo and the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're continuing our journey through the decades and focusing on the 1990s from a Native lens. What significant events do you remember from this decade? What happened in this time that changed your community? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848, also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking now with my fellow elder in training, Vincent Schilling, and talking movies from the 90s, television from the 90s. Vince, um, one 90s movie I think that has aged really well is Thunderheart. I'm a big fan. How about you? Right. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what don't you like about Thunderheart? I'm, I'm, well, you know, it's not so much that they weren't trying to do this stuff for Native people. I just thought it was a little corny for some reason. It, for me, it has aged. A little bit in terms of the acting style, film style, you know, um, 
I, I know that a lot of people absolutely love it, and I know it was about the young mixed blood FBI agent assigned to work with the cynical veteran investigator, you know, the murder on the, the res. And I, <laughs> although I was devastated to learn, along with my wife, that John did not actually do that jump flip with the with the cuff. That wasn't John. And I was devastated. Oh, really? <laughs> I was like, it was, it was a stunt, man. I was like, no, no, what are you talking about? What Indian does not do their own stunt? <laughs> <laughs> That's when they had him cornered in that house and he just like, right, right, vanished right. within there. Oh, yeah, man. yeah. Although Sam Shepard did a great job, but Val Kilmer just, you know, I just personally, <laughs> bless his heart, bless Val. He's, a, he's always been a corny actor to me, you know, I <laughs> Bless well, him, God love him, but it's never been like too exciting for me. So it's just, and that's just my personal opinion. We, we <laughs> I know can't, there's going to be like some people going, "How could you say this, Vince? How could you not love Thunderheart?" You know, I know some people absolutely loved it, but you know, maybe you'll even say it to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about Smoke Signals? Can we agree that that film influenced Native comedy like no other film up to that point? Yes, and now it's even still continuing to influence David's comedy because of Adam Beach's wig. Yeah, that was a bad wig. We had a we had a conversation with uh, with Chris uh, Chris Ayer, uh on the twentieth anniversary on on a show I used to have Native Trailblazers, and we were talking to him. And my wife did it. She goes, "Chris, what was up with the wig?" And she was like. All right. Chris goes, all right, it's been 20 years. I'll talk about it. <laughs> and he was like, well, you know, we didn't want to mess up Adam's hair and blah, blah, blah. And, and we, we were – and so then I talked to Gary Farmer. And I was like, oh, well, I heard that I heard that Adam Adam was didn't do the wig because he had gigs he didn't want to – he goes, no, he didn't. He just didn't want to cut his hair. We're an Oscar away from winning – uh, a wig away from winning that Oscar. So there were some inside details we love. But as, as much as I'm giving him uh, a hard time right now, I'm just being silly. I loved the movie. It was phenomenal. I thought it was before its time. I thought it was it was incredibly done. I love the con- who does not love the conversation and the interactions between you know you know Hey Victor and you know Adam Beach and and, and you, know, you know Thomas and what a beautiful beautiful interaction between two native guys, you know, traveling to, to seek out the, his father's legacy. And if that doesn't warm your heart, you have a heart of stone because, you know, Thomas and, and Victor's interactions were probably some of the most real and endearing things I have ever seen. And it was just absolutely an incredible, an incredible um, uh, portions of film that I've, I've seen. I, I just absolutely I, loved it. I totally agree, and uh, it completely gave new meaning to the to the term or the expression "frybread power" too, which was pretty yes. classic. Uh huh. It was <laughs> the it Superman was T-shirt. It was just that, mm-hmm, and the stories <laughs> and the yeah, yeah. It was just it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Let's I, go to the I phones. We have David listening in in Peralta, New Mexico, on KUNM. David, you're on the air. Hey, hi, howdy. Uh, yeah, uh, well, I'm kind of going back to the 70s show a couple weeks ago, and I was waiting and waiting, and you never mentioned it, and I thought it was a movie that possibly influenced the idea of the great 
Native American accurate movie. And it was called Little Big Man, and it was considered so good that the book was required reading in my English 102 class in 1971 at UNM. So I just wonder if you could say a few words about Little Big Man and if somehow it, you know, did lead to Dancing with Wolves, Dances with Wolves. David, thanks for that call and, and bring us back to the 70s show. We had Little Big Man. I remember watching it on the late night show. Uh, Dustin Hoffman. It was uh, it was a big film. Uh, Chief Dan George was in it. Vince, uh, Little Big Man. Do you think it uh, some of the what we saw in Dance with Wolves and some of the other movies you from know, the 90s? I, do you I think, think I, 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 I'm sorry I didn't catch his name, but but my friend, I agree and the the beauty of Little Big Man, and I, I got to hand it to you because that's a great mention, because Little Big Man, Chief Dan George, and uh, uh, his his presentation of a native guy, literally like talking about being with a woman and doing these things and joking around, brought a brand new energy to native acting that had never been seen before. He was a jokester. He was the coyote. He was he was freaking hilarious. But as much as he was hilarious, he was also really, really lovable and endearing. And I think it's a great mention and a great tribute. And you know what? He, he does need to be to be talked about because wow, it was it, it was probably unprecedented, you know, in terms of of, of of what you see, you know, today, you know, Dustin Hoffman and Faye Dunaway and, you know, old lodge skins, and Chief Dan George, it just, just goes to show you, you know, he can carry a film. And, a native, and he showed that Native people can carry a film because he carried it. It was about him. Yeah. It, was the, it was the Chief Dan George movie. Sorry. He was nominated for an Oscar for that role. Yes, he was. Yes, right. he was. And he should have got it because it was beautifully, beautifully done. What a great mention. I'm so appreciative to that, the gentleman who called that just said that. That was David calling in from Peralta, Thanks, New David. Mexico. Thanks, David. We're going to talk Thanks, more. We're going to talk more with Vince uh, about movies and, and pop culture from the 90s. But before we do, we've got another guest on our show today, Shannon Keller O'Loughlin. And uh, Shannon is the executive director of the Association on American Indian Affairs. And she's calling in today from Maryland. Shannon, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And it, what a great conversation you all are having. <laughs> Were you a big fan of some of those movies from the 90s, Shannon? Absolutely. It was bringing back memories. And the first time I saw Smoke Signals with with all of my uh, Native girlfriends who are now all Native aunties and and. So, I wonder what would happen if we got together today and, and rewatched that movie. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I still be in it. love with Adam Beach, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. With his bad wig and all, I guess. For yes, sure. it, yeah, that doesn't matter. We don't care about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shannon, we want to talk a little bit about some of the political do happenings and doings in the '90s, and, and can you help us out and, and kind of set us up in terms of? was going on in the early 90s in Indian country, and what were some issues that really needed to be addressed during that decade? Oh, hell, it's really hard to just say this is what happened in the 90s, because it was a culmination of what really started in the 1960s with self-determination and um, discussions and policy changes regarding American Indian religious freedom. It was also um, a time leading up to the 90s 
where um, gaming uh, became extremely important and litigated with new legislation passed in 1988, I want to say. I could have that wrong, so someone can can tell me if I'm wrong about that. With the uh, um, Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, I think it was passed in 1988. But in 1990, I think there were a couple of of pieces of legislation that came out. You had the National Museum of the American Indian Act and the legislation being passed to transfer um, the quote-unquote property of the American Indian Museum in New York to the Smithsonian, um, which has now culminated in the National Museum of the American Indian and uh, the collections there, which are now in Suitland, Maryland. Um, it also, um, November 16th, 1990, was the passage of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which kind of also grew out of the American Indian Religious Freedom Movement and the NMAI Act. And it was really and truly the first and probably only piece of Native American human rights legislation that has been passed. Um, and today, 32 years later, we're still working on um, uh, making amendments to that act and its regulations so that it, it can be all it can be and return stolen culture to, to tribes. Um, also, in, in that same time period, uh, the American Indian Arts and Crafts Act um, was amended from, I think, way back in the, the 1930s or so uh, to, to um, uh, provide stronger mechanisms to protect uh, the creators of American Indian art and making sure that they were um, from federally or state-recognized tribes. Mm-hmm. Well, Shannon, you mentioned the uh, the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, NAGPRA, that was uh, enacted by Congress in 1990. And what exactly led up to NAGPRA? Uh, so that was uh, American Indian Religious Freedoms work. So the American Indian Religious Freedom Act was found by the U.S. Supreme Court, our our favorite body of, of nine um uh, or at least five or six crazy people who are making decisions for all of us, uh, they decided that the American Indian Religious Freedoms Act had no teeth and uh, could not be enforced to help give access and protect Native American sacred places, including burials. And what came out of that was uh, this idea of how our stolen cultural heritage um, was in all these museums and in the possession of federal agencies, and that part of our our religious freedom um, and our identity relied on the return of those items. And so this word repatriation, which um, was really only used before then to talk about returning warriors or returning people, or uh, warriors' bodies from other countries to their home countries. The, the word repatriation um, was used by uh, Native American advocates like Suzanne Harjo and, um, uh, and the Echo Hawks, several of the Echo Hawks at that time, um, uh, to talk about the return of our ancestors' remains, sacred objects, and, and, and cultural objects. Uh, it, it was 
it's an amazing piece of legislation. Unfortunately, um, uh, it still needs a little help. <laughs> yeah, I think it does. But Shannon, I mean, NAGPRA and arts and crafts, that was a real one-two punch for sovereignty and culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, it, it certainly doesn't do everything. What NAGPRA doesn't do is it doesn't protect those same items that are protected um, and that can be returned through from museums and federal agencies. It doesn't do the same for those um, ancestors' bodies and cultural and sacred items that are held by private individuals. Um, or private entities. So there is still room for improvement um, so that we can really achieve the full force of our sovereignty over our cultural um, belongings. We're speaking right now with Shannon O'Loughlin, and uh, we're going to speak more with Shannon, but we've got another caller on the line. We have Gerald listening in Albuquerque on KUNM. Gerald, thanks for calling in today. Hi, thank you. Um, I just wanted to, uh, going back to uh, um, uh, uh, film and movies, um, I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that um, uh, movie uh, Black Robe, uh, which is about um, an early um, uh, French-Canadian Catholic missionary uh, who uh, ends up uh, uh, journeying with a, a group of natives up into, like, uh, the Huron country and all the stuff that he he kind of goes through and 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 what actually you know befalls um not only the the um uh, uh-huh. the band that's um you know transporting uh-huh. him up to this uh this other settlement uh but what was going on at the settlement at the time and it's 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 kind of like you know the very beginning i mean you got the pope up there now apologizing for a lot of stuff and 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 um here this this is kind of a look back at the the very the very origins i mean this is like uh you know when um uh, champlain and those early explorers were up there colonizing um uh canada and i uh, just wondering if you were familiar with the film and if you uh, what your thoughts were Gerald, thanks for calling in, and I sure do remember Black Robe. That was a dark film, uh, for sure, for certain. You did a good job of describing that early European contact up there in, in North America. Vince, Black Robe, what do you remember about it? I knew you were going to do that to me. <laughs> 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 Let's just say, okay, I, I I haven't seen the film. Let's put, but let's let's put a little bit of reason why. My grandmother, uh, I'm Aquasasne Mohawk. My grandmother went to Canadian residential schools with the haircut and everything. I found a picture of my grandmother with that haircut and uh, got some devastating stuff. So when I see Jesuit missionary, black robe, 17th century, small party of companions, you know, going, uh, trying to reach the Huron tribe in Canada and all this stuff and the Iroquois who are warring, you know, which I should say Haudenosaunee now is my, my tribesman kind of um, more embracing that. Needless to say, I might have a little bit of an aversion to wanting to watch that film. That doesn't mean it wasn't a good film. I don't know. But you know what? I'm going to add it to my list. But I, I can tell you just even talking about it right now, I get a feeling of like, ooh, it's, it's tough for me. You know, it's hard for me because this is this – is in, in my blood, uh, thinking of my grandmother being in residential schools and 
and her uh, grandmother, uh, her her own mother, you know, breaking her out of the school, um, you know, uh, which is why I'm gonna I'm, I'm I'm writing a book about this stuff right now, and and it's 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 not it's not an easy topic for 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 me, and so I have a little bit of an aversion to it. But I've been asked many times about this film, so I just haven't seen it. But I, I all right. All right, folks, you got me. Uncle, I'll add it to my list. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll review it on Rotten Tomatoes. You know what I've always thought of doing is, is reviewing all the native films who've never been reviewed for Rotten Tomatoes. So. Yes, the classics. The classics, mm-hmm. for sure, there, Vince. You need I to did do a that. story on you know, 50 native films, and there was still a bunch to go. Bring that back out. Well, folks, we're talking with Shannon O'Loughlin from the Association on American Indian Affairs and Vincent Schilling, a film critic. We're talking all about the 1990s movies. We're talking about NAGPRA, arts and crafts, Indian gaming, lots of stuff happening in the 1990s. If you want to share your thoughts, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the Act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential Act violations can be done at doi.gov IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're working our way through the decades. We started in the 60s and now we're here in the 90s, highlighting important events, politics, and pop culture that helped shape Native America. The entire series can be found on our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com. Still time to join us. We're at 1-800-996-2848. Once again, 1-800-996-2848 to tell us what you remember about the 90s. We're speaking right now with Shannon O'Loughlin. She is executive director of the Association on American Indian Affairs. And Shannon, talking with Vince, talking about movies, talking about pop culture. And I want to ask you, did the rise of Native representation in pop culture during the 90s, do you think that influenced policy at all? Oh, it hugely influenced policy. I think it influenced all of us in in you know, so it, was, it wasn't just an influence of, of policy, but I think it was an influence and a rise of Native students, a rise of Native students going to law school um, and doing other things and bringing that education back home to better advocate for people. So really the, the 70s was kind of the first decade of, of a really huge um, – uh, a, a much larger number of Native students going to school and, and getting degrees and advanced degrees to help people. And it was them who were the advocates in the 90s to make changes in the 80s and 90s. And so I think it, that push really allowed us to stand. And I was one of those people that stood on their shoulders, those those graduates from the 70s and 80s. I stood on their shoulders in the 90s and went back to school so that I could be a strong advocate. Um, And so the cycle goes. So absolutely seeing Native people on on TV and film, hearing about us in in newspaper articles, 
um, and and the rise of tribal economic development during that period of time really um, uh, shone a light that hadn't been in Indian country um, uh, probably ever. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and well, going back to probably since the '60s, right? Probably since the '60s, and that that um, advocacy and, and the AIM movement. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that you note that the the seeds of what we saw, the growth and the advancement in the '90s, it really had its roots there in the '70s when when so many Native people, uh, you know, were able to go to school and get those advanced degrees, like you describe. And and going back to to Nagpra. Shannon, I mean that that took a lot of a lot of groundwork to get those policy decisions and um, legal victories as well. Didn't happen overnight. Um, who were some of the key players in that space that that made those those efforts a reality? Right. So um, uh, it was definitely so. The Association on American Indian Affairs was a strong part, and our um, executive director at that time was Jerry Flute. And um, uh, and so we were there on the front lines with other uh, Native advocates uh, working on the language, the direct language that was to be uh, NAGPRA. And we were also negotiating with folks from the Smithsonian and from other large institutions who were fighting against uh, NAGPRA. So we were working to find ways that moved forward, um, unfortunately, in some compromises uh, uh, that, you know, kind of bite us today. Um, uh, and other people involved in, in um, the 80s and, and 90s on that was absolutely Suzanne Shon Harjo, who's Hidolgi Muskogee, um, and uh, her Institute, the Morning Star Institute. She she is a strong advocate in these issues of repatriation and sacred places, and she continues to be. Um, NCAI, of course, was involved, um, and um, uh, and I'm forgetting which Echo Hawk. <laughs> I think John John Echo Hawk and well, Narf they were John, involved as well, weren't they? They were, and also um, the other attorney, Echo Hawk, um, who has written beautifully on issues of NAGPRA, um, uh, who's, uh, for some reason, I just, his name is escaping me, and I feel so terrible because he's he's an elder, and I, I deeply respect his work. Um, uh, you know, there were, there were some really key people um, including Jerry Flute, uh, Mr. Echo Hawk, and Suzanne, um, really leading the charge back then uh, to make those changes. Um, I've got some notes here from my producer. That other attorney, uh, perhaps Mark Echo Hawk or, or Walter Echo Hawk, maybe that Walter, might be the name. Walter. 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 That's the name. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, Shannon, how would you describe the general attitude toward Native patrimony before NAGPRA? What's interesting is that Western science and museums and and those types of research institutions and academia always saw our bodies and our cultural and sacred objects as fodder for their research, as if they somehow had um, uh, God gave them ownership 
of our bodies and, and cultural items. Um, they never had free prior and informed consent from the Native nations and the Native um, uh, people whose culture that, that belonged to. And so with that, that initial taking, that improper taking and theft and looting that happened of our bodies and, and cultural items, they also, um, uh, you know, their ignorance continued because they really didn't know who our people were. They didn't know what our cultural objects meant. So they created their own stories based on their perspectives from Western uh, science and Christian ideology about what those items meant. So even today, we see items for sale at auction or items still on display at institutes like the Nelson Atkins Museum or the Metropolitan Museum of Art that still does not have the true stories about what certain items mean and are still just using our items behind glass, putting putting them behind glass with a little label um, uh, w without any true consultation or collaboration. Um, uh, what NAGPRA has done for the process, though so many institutions, academia and researchers, uh, were so resistant, what it's done today is it's created, NAGPRA has created amazing relationships between many Native nations and those institutions that used to have our collections in our bodies um, to actually do what the institution should have been doing in the first place with public education, is working with those origin communities and developing exhibits and educational opportunities in an appropriate way um, that was in line with our cultural beliefs and protocols. Right. So though they mm -hmm. were resistant, those same resistant institutions today are very grateful for their work in NAGPRA and with Native Nations. Shannon, is there momentum for improving NAGPRA to go beyond just federally funded institutions? There, there is momentum. What we've seen from our, our current Department of Interior, led by the wonderful Secretary Deb Holland, is that um, the regulations uh, that implement the act, that implement the legislation, uh, have been completely redrafted and revised and were provided to Native nations last year about this time uh, for our review and, and consultation. So now the Department of Interior has been reviewing those comments and is re-revising um, that complete redo of those regulations. So, so those regulations have been problematic, and Department of Interior is doing something to right those wrongs. Now, as far as NAGPRA, the act is concerned, that we have to go back to Congress for. And unfortunately, there, um, there are congressional and Senate leaders that are holding tribal bills hostage and not allowing any movement on on bills unless their bills get get passed. So um, it seems to be, and, and I'm forecasting that it's going to continue to be um, absolutely through the rest of this year, really difficult to move anything through Congress like changes to the, the act of NAGPRA. Um, but we're hopeful for those NAGPRA regulations will give us some, some relief and um, positive 
changes. Well, some other interesting occurrences during the 90s. In 1992, the Mashantucket Pequot Nation opened Foxwoods High Stakes Bingo and Casino in Ledyard, Connecticut. At the time, it was the largest Native American-owned and operated casino. And in 1993, Colville actress and screenwriter Kimberly Norris Guerrero appears on the mega-hit television sitcom Seinfeld. She played Jerry's love interest Winona in the long-running series 74th episode titled The Cigar Store Inden. And Shannon, one thing we have not talked about yet on the show is the whole tech revolution and the rise of the internet during the 90s. Cell phones, emails, those advancements first became widely available in the 90s. And Do you remember how they impacted your work in Native America? Absolutely. Well, you know, so I, I, I still remember my Packard Bell computer um, from the <laughs> 90s um, and AOL. And I will tell you, I think uh, if anyone remembers AOL and instant messaging um, and the groups that were available to chat in AOL, it helped bring Native people, that technology helped bring Native people together, those that you know, we're going to school and um, uh, we're forming those kind of Native American chat groups. Um, it, it really created a, a, a community based in that technology that has just grown with the growth of technology. I mean, look at um, the Native uh, people who are uh, now doing these wonderful TikTok videos. Um, you know, so so technology has really built a community for uh, natives to express themselves and to connect with other natives from not just in the U.S., but all of us who are all over the world. And um, a along with that, we're seeing, you know, the growth of broadband. You know, there are still some gaps in our um, uh, in, in technology and data, and that's a little bit beyond my um, my wheelhouse. Uh, but we're seeing growth today in making sure we're all wired and connected, um, especially during the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. But that also allowed easier access for people who um, are living in their homelands to access D.C. and access their congressional representatives. It gave another outlet for us to reach out and lobby Congress and, and federal agencies. So I think it's, it's brought us together in a lot of ways um, that have been uh, really productive and positive for our continuing advocacy and various issues. Because we constantly are having to educate everybody about who Native people are, um, uh, you know, it still hasn't stuck in our society about why we're here and why things are the way they are. So um, I'm glad that we have technology to to help educate folks. You mentioned that old Packard Bell computer and the Native <laughs> American chat rooms. I want to ask Vince Schilling. Vince, do you remember those AOL Native American chat rooms? Dude, I was working on a Commodore 64. <laughs> Trust me, it's been a while. Yes. That, Vince, you were that, still in the that, 80s and the 1990s. One, one sound that people will never, and I'm going to do a terrible version of it, but the sound that many of us know where that, as you were trying to connect each time, you know, 
Oh my gosh, yes. I remember, and I remember, I remember literally, and it's hilarious that you're asking this because I had one of those old green, green type word processors, and I was writing a, a paper for Native American studies of all things at San Francisco State University, and I swear to God, three times I got to the end of the paper. And like, I don't know, there was a power surge or whatever, but everything was reset and erased. And I was literally in my room screaming, going, no, no, no. you know, it's it just not how I used to be. So yeah, I finally managed to get something together. But those were the days, that's for sure. We're, we're just about out of time on the show, but we do have about another minute or so. And Vince, I want to give you the, the last word. And Shannon was talking about uh, the Arts and Crafts Act. And I know this doesn't necessarily, uh, we're not talking movies so much, but it did give Native people control over their work. And, and how significant do you think that is just in, in arts and entertainment in general amongst Native people? Giving us power over our work. What do you, what do you mm-hmm. mean? What do you mean, Sean? Well, because with the the Arts and Crafts Act now, of course, Native people have that ability, that ownership, that ownership and that control of their art. And how does that uh, translate into film and entertainment of the decade? Yeah, well, a sense of entertainment, a a sense of pride and a sense of comfort knowing that that what you're doing is protected. But then because of, you know, seeing how sacred and important it is that, that actual work by actual you know, you know, native artisans as opposed to people just ripping things off to try and sell it for for cheaper, you know, gave a sense of like, oh, there is some legitimacy in in what we are seeing here. I mean, the biggest example I can think of is a lot of, um, you know, actual native artisans were used in Rutherford Falls, you know, including even the clouds in the background that you see of the, of the you know, the series, you know, trailer. Uh, were done by Native artists. The, the earrings that Jana Schmeeding wears are done by Native artists. You know, so okay, this yeah. this type of stuff is you're seeing all over the place, and it's being more and more embraced as as time moves on. So I think the has biggest to thing. Be, I, I'm sorry, Vince. We're going to have to wrap up the show, but uh, it has to be Native to say it's Native. That's uh, that's the summary. The quick the quick summary of the the Arts and Crafts Act. So uh, I want to thank our guests, Shannon O'Loughlin and Vincent Schilling. We appreciate you both helping us gain a better understanding of the 90s decade and its impacts on Native America. Please join us again on Native America Calling tomorrow as we celebrate Isleta Pueblo civil rights leader, Miguel Trujillo. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. Support by the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, presenting Ancestors Know Who We Are, a new online exhibition that features works by six contemporary black indigenous women artists. Joelle Joyner, Paige Pettibon, Moira Pernambuco, Monica Rickert-Bolter, Stormy Weber, and Rodslin Brown, addressing race, gender, multiracial identity, and intergenerational knowledge. More at AmericanIndian.si.edu. Hey, hey. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.